welcome to Grasp Podcast, where we discuss the motivations and experiences that brought educators and researchers to academia. This is my conversation with Dr. Jules White, a tenured professor of computer science at Vanderbilt University, as well as the Associate Dean for Strategic Learning Programs in the School of Engineering. Professor White completed his PhD in 2008 at Vanderbilt under the advisorship of Doug Schmidt. He then went on to become a professor at Virginia Tech before returning to Vanderbilt, where he is today. Professor White's research interests are around mobile computing, cybersecurity, and optimization. He has a number of successful courses on Coursera, has advised many graduate students, was also an artist previously, and is an excellent creative thinker and science communicator. Professor White is also the reason that I'm in grad school today, and I'm very thankful for his mentorship. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Awesome. So if you could just start by maybe outlining kind of your earliest memory that you can recall of interacting with the computer, uh, maybe what was it? How did you get your hands on it? And then maybe the time that you fell in love with programming or the first program that you wrote, where you kind of like maybe hooked on computer science. Yeah, well, I, I guess the very uh, first computer that I worked with, <clears throat> I think it was an Apple IIc. Um, so my father was a professor in creative writing, but he started a um, an educational software company that basically created software to help people uh, learn to write. So at the college level, so freshman English type writing, um, graduate write, you know, writing programs, technical writing. <clears throat> and so um, since he had that company, we always had a computer sitting around at the house. Um, since, you know, I guess since I was probably four or five, we had a computer. Um, wow. and, and so I was always kind of fascinated by, you know, what what it was, what it could do. <clears throat> he also had, you know, I met the programmers who worked for the uh, worked for his company and um, was very close to one of them when I was a little kid. And uh, he actually, for my birthday one year, I was probably like six. He wrote me a computer game, which I thought was actually the coolest thing ever. And then that made really made me want to be able to do something similar. I wanted to understand how it worked and how to write it, uh, write it games for it. Um, I didn't really, I guess probably when I was maybe, and I may be completely off on the ages, but I think when I was seven or so, we had an excellent uh, computer teacher at my school. I went to a private school and he, there was a summer camp where they were doing programming with logo. And so I think that was some of the earliest programming I did was with the, I think it was called logo at the time. And you could program it to do simple graphics on like an Apple to something. Um, and so that's when I re remember being really excited about uh, doing programming. And, th and that uh, teacher actually, I think went on to teach in college later at the time. I think he was getting his PhD and then he was teaching at my school. If I, if I remember correctly, um, and then later on, I think in high school, um, you know, I did programming on like a TI-82 calculator, which I thought was really fun. Um, and, um, you know, along the way, 
you know, computers weren't as easy as they are now. So back in the, you know, when there were text-based adventure games and, you know, early games with graphics, I would have to do a lot of playing around with the the boot sequence on the computer to try to get it to have enough memory to run particular games I wanted. Um, and so a lot of like just mucking around in DOS and other things. So, so all of those things, I just thought it was really fun. Um, and then when I got to college, I didn't, I started off as a visual arts major, but my freshman roommate um, was majoring in computer science and he was taking the intro class. And I thought the assignments looked like a lot of fun. So when he was doing the assignments, I started doing some of the initial assignments myself. And I thought, wow, that's really fun. I, I, you know, I'm doing the assignments and I'm not in the class. I should definitely uh, take some more of these classes. That's really interesting. So I guess segueing into uh, maybe more like your, so your undergraduate experience, I know a little bit about your background with, oh, well, I didn't know about that initial uh, kind of exposure to computer science. Interesting kind of how luck played a role there. Could you speak a little more to how you uh, maybe got more into computer science and then what uh, maybe roles um, or mentors and experiences kind of transpired that, uh, made you decide that you wanted to stay in academia? Was there a certain experience or or kind of a time that you recalled, like, this is what I know what I want to do? Yeah, well, I, I think if you had asked me when I was like, uh, probably going back to very, very early days, but I know that there, at least by middle school, if you had asked me, what do you want to do? <clears throat> um, I probably would have said professor. Um, so I knew very early on that this was what I wanted to do. I mean, both my uh, parents were faculty. My dad was um, a professor. He directed the graduate writing program at USC. Um, and so I knew, like, what I saw was is just sort of the the intellectual freedom to go and sort of be very entrepreneurial and pursue the ideas that you think are exciting and, and interesting. And so I knew from very early age that that was what I wanted to do. Um, I think as I got older, I didn't necessarily, um, I didn't necessarily think about that being my career path. In um, when I was in undergrad, I don't think I was thinking about going to be a professor, but I'd always thought about it as being something that I would like to do eventually. And so, but when I would knew I after you know. Um, I guess once I graduated, I went to work for IBM for a year. And then my artwork, I was doing very well in terms of selling my artwork and having gallery shows. And so I lived off of my artwork for several years, but I always knew that I wanted to go back to grad school. And so um, I just got to the point where I said, okay, it seems like the right time to go back to grad school. And, um, and I think once I started grad school, I always had the assumption that I was going back to grad school to go into academia. Um, so that was it, from a very, very early age, I knew or thought that I wanted to um, be a professor. But I think that was also just because um, I saw uh, what my parents did and it always seemed really exciting to me. Now, granted, they were in in creative writing and English, which is very, very different from you know computer science. But um, at the same time, I sort of grew up in the academic environment. Um, you know, I went to class with my dad. You know, when I when 
you know, there was nobody to, you know, and I would sit in the back of the class and see what the class was like. And, you know, um, you know, there would be lectures and things that I would go to or um, dinners. And, you know, he had all these other friends who were faculty and it, it just always seemed like really exciting to me and something that I wanted to do. Sure. Seems like there's a little bit of a kind of uh, inspiration from the family side, which is is pretty exciting. So you mentioned uh, a lot of early exposure to writing, and then I'm I'm eager to discuss kind of the creativity element and then your artwork, um, just in in general. But if you could linger a little bit more on kind of the writing process, so having a a mother as an English professor and then a father as a creative writing professor probably gave you a a huge advantage early on and maybe kind of honing your craft and writing. And a, a lot of people kind of think that even though humans have a pretty low information rate in terms of verbal language, spoken language, writing is arguably one of the best ways to kind of clearly express your thoughts. So could you speak to maybe about uh, how you, maybe through, if it's through your parents or through other teachers or experiences, how you really honed your your writing craft, which is obviously a pretty important skill in academia for research work and also things like proposal writing. Yeah, well, um, so starting in the third grade, my dad volunteered to come and teach my class once a week. So uh, he would come and, and teach uh, writing basically to third grade. All He did this all the way through eighth grade. And so, you know, very early on, um, you know, I learned a lot about, um, you know, writing from him. And I mean, obviously at school too, but we we had, you know, basically um, a college professor who was coming in once a week and having us write stories and, you know, essays and things. And then we would do, it was kind of fun because it was basically doing exactly what was being done in this college class, which is, you know, going through each person's work, you know, sentence by sentence and discussing how to improve the writing. And so I learned a real a huge amount from that. Um, and then once I started um, grad school, so Doug Schmidt was my advisor and I learned a, you know, a huge amount about writing from Doug as well. So um, I think one of the, the things that I think anybody would get out of, you know, going and getting a PhD is there's a huge amount of um, learning in terms of writing. And, um, you know, I think having grown up with a lot of writing instruction, it was very, very helpful um, when I got to graduate school. Uh, but then even still in graduate school, there's, you know, sort of a particular style to technical science writing and how you think about what you're trying to present. You know, I mean, basically, we're trying to you know, create and disseminate new ideas and, and information, you know, and so learning how do you do that effectively and, um, you know, and write in order to make that uh, possible is, is something that, that takes some time to learn. Sure. Yeah, I think I'm definitely very much still learning and have, have learned a lot from you in terms of writing and also the kind of the importance of a narrative where you you might not even really consider having a research problem and, and needing a, a story to go with it. But that's one of the things that I think you've reinforced is really taking the reader on a journey through what kind of problem exists, why it hasn't been solved, and then kind of seg segueing or transitioning that into your solution approach. So that's uh, that's pretty informative. Uh, speaking of writing, you 
you did your thesis on software product lines, kind of in the context of uh, cybersecurity. So I'm wondering if you could maybe do a brief flyover, uh, kind of how you landed on software product lines, if maybe you can discuss um, the evolution of software kind of from your early career to kind of how you see it now. There's a big push for uh, kind of like COTS software building blocks or software as a service. Uh, there's also maybe this broader idea of a write once, run everywhere paradigm. So could you maybe, I know that's like five questions bundled together, but maybe uh, just touch on how you got into software product lines, uh, maybe how you how you consider the evolution of software today, and then maybe uh, things like GitHub Copilot or you know these bundled, really wrapped up software services that are are, are more accessible. Uh, kind of how do you think about those maybe through a security lens? Yeah, so <clears throat> software product lines I think are interesting in that's basically a set. You know, if you're a company that's going to produce multiple products, if you think about IoT, like we have all these devices. Um, and I'll try not to say the names of them because they'll respond otherwise. But we have all these smart speakers, for example, in our houses. Yeah. And if you're a manufacturer of those smart speakers, you probably have one base software platform that runs on all those software on all those smart speakers. And then you have different variations or configurations of it. And so you don't want to write from scratch, you know, each uh, you know set of software that's going to go on each different you know shape and size of speaker. With different, you know, capabilities, you want to have one sort of base baseline software, um, you know, architecture that then has different points of customization, and so that's what software product lines are about. And so I was interested in the aspects of how do you figure out how to configure those product lines in different ways um, in order to meet different requirements. So I mean, at the end of the day, all of these things is about trying to be able to quickly and easily customize your software um, to meet different requirement sets. Um, and I think that product lines are everywhere. I think that you see them all over the place from automobiles to planes to IoT devices. Um, but I think that um, academia is probably farther ahead in terms of uh, um, formalizing all the ways that you configure them. I think things tend to be done more ad hoc in industry and in real life um, and not as planned out as they could be. Um, and so I think one of the challenges you see is a lot of the academic approaches to these things have been built on this idea that you would have more formalization and modeling of how they work that doesn't necessarily pan out in the real world. And so a lot of the ideas and things that that are developed and successful from an academic perspective require sort of upfront investment and thinking that either industry doesn't necessarily have time for, or um, they're not willing to invest in it because it's not clear to them that there will be a payoff in the in the timeline that they they have to you know, recoup their investment. That's an interesting point about kind of the disparity or the disconnect between having a technology that is maybe kind of incubated or developed in academia, and then it's time to kind of go out into the real world and things are a lot messier than the uh, vacuum 
of a research environment. So that's that's a uh, a pretty a pretty interesting point. So I'm wondering if you could uh, linger a little bit on um, kind of well. So I guess it's two things. One of them is uh, how how um, so random chance and maybe like decisions on a whim. And if I could just beat on JavaScript a little bit here, uh, created by Brendan Ike, and it was I think a created over the course of a few weeks or something, but as you mentioned, very ad hoc for the problem that he was facing at the time. So is there an opinion that you have about kind of these aggregated or accumulated uh, decisions that were made on a whim by like early tech pioneers that have kind of led us to what we know as the internet today and for better or worse, kind of the vulnerabilities and the kind of opportunities for malicious activity that have been kind of folded in as a result of of those early decisions, whether it's you know certain protocol structures or uh, certain primitives and programming languages that kind of again expose these kind of weird edge case vulnerability situations, how do you how do you kind of view that? Yeah, well, I think um, I think there's a bunch of questions wrapped up in there, but I think so. I think maybe the first question is you know. We, we build things and design things um, based on our needs today. And sometimes we end up with solutions that work really well for a long time but and become very popular. And then eventually, as the world changes, as requirements changes, as our, our knowledge of what's important changes, things that may be really popular may become you know, liabilities or debts because they don't quite fit the current world. And so their their capabilities have flaws that, you know, like for example, cybersecurity flaws. So they may have been a great way of doing things at the time and they may have been a very good fit at the time. But, you know, now cybersecurity is such an issue that they may have some fundamental vulnerabilities or or potential for mistakes that they become problematic. And so I think you're always going to have the the case that you have cycles of things being designed and created for one um, state of the world and those technologies, the solutions becoming popular. Um, and then over time, the world's going to change and they're no longer going to, you know, be the right fit. And it doesn't mean, you know, I think pe people tend to look at it as like, oh, well, they're bad things or they didn't, they weren't done well from the first, you know, and it's not that at all is a lot of times they were done really, really well at the beginning. And that's what may allow them to become so popular. But you know, some characteristics of them haven't evolved well or aren't easily evolvable to fit what's current in the world. Um, and I think that's just any software system, I think anything you have, you're going to see that because just the world's going to continue to change. And so I don't think you're ever going to have one perfect solution. I think the other thing is you're going to see that once you design some software system, some technology, some framework, some language, um, you're going to have people that get excited about it, start learning it. And over time, it's going to become more and more mainstream and popular. And I think that human component of of how um, it gets, you know, that we we need people to learn the frameworks, we need them to learn the architectures and the languages in order for it to be successful. But that also slows how quickly it can evolve because if you change something, you also need to retrain everybody. So. I think you're always facing these these challenge of you design something that's 
really well designed and thought out um, for the requirements at the time. And then it becomes popular and people learn it. And then it is, isn't a good fit anymore, but you have lots of people that have learned it. And so one, it's not easy to change it because that requires breaking what people know. It also um, is upsetting to people. So you have resistance to change it. So I think you have this also this human co component that then limits the ability for that thing to evolve, which I think is a lot of the times why you see completely new languages or frameworks that get created because people get to go and start from scratch and they don't have um, all of the constraints on being able to evolve and, and um, you know, choose what is and isn't it, you know, it, it makes it easier, I think, in some cases to go and do something that fits today um, without the resistance to, to changing it. And I think from a security perspective, this is really important because if you look at, I think of cybersecurity as it's about human mistakes. Somebody makes a, a mistake in how they designed, implemented, configured, and deployed or used some system, and somebody else take, makes, you know, takes advantage of that in order to um, do something. So I think whenever you have systems that are designed by humans, languages, frameworks, architectures, there are always going to be mistakes there. And the, you know, the faster the world changes, the more likely it's going to expose, you know, design deficiencies in some system relative to today's requirements. And so whenever you have things that are needing to evolve, you're probably always going to have security issues that come up. And the harder it is to change or evolve those systems, the more likely it is that those security issues are going to become really problematic over time. That's a fascinating point. I actually didn't really consider that too much, which is the kind of inertia that humans have to change and kind of the consequences of changing or updating a software in a way that requires kind of a sweeping um, change or update to human training. And it's kind of easy to imagine how that could introduce a whole host of, of problems. So you have a lot of material out uh, in online courseware and then obviously at Vanderbilt studying different cybersecurity case studies and and uh, different stories about kind of where things went wrong. You've also done some contract work in uh, kind of reviewing proprietary code. Is there a, uh, at, to the degree that you can discuss, is there a like particular or maybe a couple anecdotes or security incidents that maybe were kind of like mind blowing to you in your career? Uh, maybe something that was a very complicated or um, nefarious bug, something that maybe caused uh, a lot of loss in terms of uh, maybe like down system downtime or revenue or something that was really unexpected, maybe in that there was some issue in one component of a system, uh, but it ended up manifesting very, very far away in another uh, component of a system. Is there Are there any that like stick out that that you can discuss? Well, I I honestly think that nothing is is that surprising to me. I think the most surprising thing is that most of the mistakes, most of the vulnerabilities and things are things that are well known. You know, it's it's repetition of the same mistakes. And and I think that's kind of the most fascinating piece of all of this is that um people get excited and report on the exotic things that are more unusual. But I think the bread and butter of, of cybersecurity is really just 
the same mistakes being made over and over, you know? And so um, I think there's a lot of focus on trying to fix the exotic when really what we should be focused on is really going for the low hanging fruit and really thinking about how do we rethink what we do to prevent people from making the same mistakes over and over. Um, you know, the more complexity we add, the more likely we are to, to have people make mistakes that lead to cybersecurity flaws. I think we really have to think about, you know, as we add technology, um, as we put software into more and more things, you know, how do we really think about um, the human element of supporting people to do the right thing, um, to make it less likely to make mistakes, to make it so that it's lower effort to um, do something securely than it is to do something insecurely. I think a lot of times we just build systems and we put software out there to try to, you know, we create all kinds of features, but we don't really think through it from a human perspective of like, how do we bundle these things and design them in a way so that it's less likely that somebody is going to do the wrong thing than it is that they're going to do the right thing. Um, and so I think, I think that's really the most interesting thing to me is just that um, we continue to add complexity in software and go for feature after feature and put more and more software into every device around us without really thinking of the ramifications of that in terms of people making mistakes that are going to lead to cybersecurity vulnerabilities. And we just keep getting more and more of the same types of mistakes. Um, we still don't have, you know, people are still, uh, you know, particularly from a user perspective, are still doing all, you know, being fooled by phishing emails and using, you know, uh, reusing passwords all over the place and using weak passwords. And, um, you know, we still have software engineers that are hard coding passwords and backdoors and, um, you know, creating SQL injection vulnerabilities, things that are really, really well-known bad practices. And we're still repeating those same things. Um, but then when we think about cybersecurity, a lot of the exciting stuff is like, you know, this exotic, uh, you know, side channel that's been found that you could possibly steal something. Well, you know, if you're an attacker, are you really going to go after the exotic side channel or are you going to go look for that, um, you know, hard-coded password that's built into, you know, millions of devices that nobody bothers changing when they take the device out of the box? Um, because that would be an extra step for them. You know, I think that's I think that's where the, the really interesting pieces of cybersecurity are. And, and what's surprising to me is that we're not focused on those sort of simpler uh, aspects of it. Interesting. Yeah, I think what you said is right on. Like there's there's this one on the one side, there's kind of the research thrust for very complicated and intri intricate problems. And then on the other uh you know, there's kind of the OWASP top 10. There's, again, these well-known structures that exist in code. And then it's kind of about finding some kind of solution that can maybe detect these or mitigate them uh, potentially while the human is, is doing the implementation. Uh, so AI is transitioning here. AI is uh, one kind of technique or, I guess, a broad area where there are a number of problems that have been addressed with AI, but there's also maybe like as many problems have been addressed, there are an equal number of questions that have been raised. And 
Um, more specifically, so there's GitHub Copilot, which is kind of this assistive technology that's based on AI where it can kind of, given a natural language prompt, can emit some code that uh, is meant to solve the task as was described. There's also uh, capabilities in generative art where an AI can kind of help explore the space of maybe textures or colors or patterns, and then other things like uh, computer vision, um, cyber physical systems, where there's some kind of AI entity that can do some sensing and decision making. Uh, and then also AI in education, where, again, kind of along with the theme of exploring a space that a human can't really comprehend well, uh, kind of identifying certain pieces of the learning process that might improve uh, an individual learner's uh, skill set. So can you discuss maybe how you see AI kind of bolstering each of these fields? And then kind of on the flip side, what are some of the important questions in terms of interpretability and maybe security considerations, um, specifically kind of understanding how an AI made a decision and maybe not as, not as um, urgent for things like um, AI-assisted art or education applications as something like a real-time um, sy embedded system or something like an autonomous vehicle. Yeah, so I think that if, you, if we talk about GitHub Copilot specifically, um, in some ways, uh, I think if we look at it from how is it going to impact software development, I think its impact is going to be very similar to Stack Overflow or being able to go and Google for solutions. So, you know, I think there's there's already been the problem that you have software engineers and they say, I need some code to do X. And so they go and Google, Google you know, and try to find a solution to it. And they inevitably come to a Stack Overflow post, or maybe they come to a post where somebody else has created some code online and they say, well, this code will do what I'm trying to do, but they fundamentally don't understand the security ramifications or performance or other aspects of that code. Um, and so before GitHub Copilot, they would copy and paste that code in and maybe tweak it in some ways to make it work um, for what they were doing. And if you now with GitHub Copilot, they just do it in their editor and you know they type in some phrasing, maybe similar to what they would have done in uh, Google, but you know before, but now they're doing it directly in their editor, and they're getting some code and they're dropping it in. And so I think if you look at it, the fundamental problem in either case is when you have um, software developers who are in the you know in their haste to get things done are more focused on you know filling in code and having it do something that seems like the right thing than they are on truly trying to understand what it is that they're putting in there. And so I think, you know, copying and pasting from random sources without understanding what it is or how it works um, is very similar to using GitHub Copilot. And so I don't think it's doing anything, you know, I think it's just facilitating um, software engineers and doing that. Now, if they understand the code, or they get the code and then they edit it in some way, then I don't I don't necessarily think there's a problem as long as obviously all of the other legal and sort of ethical things like is this code being stolen from, you know, the work of open source developers in some way, or is it somehow taking away? And and I'll, you know, leaving those things aside, 
um, which are obviously major issues. But like, if we just think about it from a, you know, how does this impact software engineering? I think it may, um, it's it's similar to cut and paste. As long as the the software developer really understands what they're taking and what they're using, um, there's not necessarily a problem, you know, at least from a software engineering perspective. Um, if it's, you know, and, and you could think about an organization, a large, orga large organization has tons and tons of code and they have certain ways that maybe they do things or certain common structures or approaches or algorithms. You know, if you're a massive um, company that's producing software, something like GitHub Copilot, particularly if it's like really limited in scope to the way that code is written within your organization, that might be a great thing. I think the risk comes when you have people who are using stuff that they don't really understand, where the source is completely unclear, um, which then, of course, adds all of the interesting things about licensing and ethics. Um, but also just like you don't know the skill level of the person that wrote that code. You don't know what security implications are there. So I think that's when you have problems. Um, I think that. Uh, I'm not sure that that interpretability or traceability or any of these things are going to solve this problem. I think the fundamental issue at the end of the day is that you have people that are willing to accept and reuse some code um, and copy and paste it into an application without really understanding it or without really caring where it came from. And so it's really a more of an underlying sort of cultural, ethical issue of software engineers just wanting to you know, build something quickly and, and put it in place. And it's not always a bad thing, but um, if you are in the wrong domain or if you're not really thinking through the risks properly of doing that as a software engineer, if you're not really thinking this could create licensing risk or cybersecurity risk or, you know, performance risk or something else, and you're not really cognizant of those then issues, and I think most people aren't doing it maliciously, but, but I think they are doing it sort of um, blind to the greater risks of just sort of copying and reusing code. So I think I think this is going to, long term, I think there needs to be sort of a cultural um, you know, discussion in the software engineering community about this sort of blind copying and pasting of code that like um, became enabled by Stack Overflow and Google. Not that those things are bad at all. I think it's really great to have examples out there. But I think the blind reuse of code without having to think through the ramifications of that, I think this is really just going to, you know, magnify the need for thought on what when it makes sense to use it. Is it really worth it? And probably organizations that are just driven by how many lines of code have you gotten, how many features have you implemented, you know, and are focused solely on sort of like progress in the sense of like code base size and feature size and less on quality. I think this will hopefully make folks more attuned to the need to think about quality as one being one of the really important issues. And when you start thinking about things in terms of quality, it can't just be about, you know, cutting and pasting doesn't necessarily, you know, lead you in the right direction. That's an interesting uh, duality that you bring up, kind of that idea of trading off the velocity of development with the quality of the code. And it's, I guess it's maybe an apt 
kind of example of technical debt where you're kind of just like, here's something that was thrown together or kind of taken blindly and it solves the problem now, but never mind the things that it could cause issues with later on. So that is an interesting issue and I guess pretty maybe increasingly urgent. And I think that cultural shift that you you mentioned is, is definitely something that's necessary. So earlier you touched on kind of your artwork and you've had some success as an artist. And I'm really curious for your thoughts and maybe kind of perspectives on how you view if there is any overlap between the art that you do, maybe if that's, and uh, be happy or interested to hear about kind of the art media that you've worked on. Um, But back to the question was the overlap of art and code and maybe some of your influences for the art that you work on. And then maybe if you still uh, work on art today, can you talk about kind of your process for for starting or working on a new art project or or code project if if you're still up to that kind of stuff, as well as the role that creativity plays uh, in research and and obviously in in creating new art? Well, uh, what I would say is I really like making things, <laughs> and, and you know, uh, paint is one medium, code is another medium. Um, you know, uh, it could be wood it could be clay it could be um you know writing a paper can can feel like creating something in the same way that painting a paper i mean painting a a painting can and so you know my you know, different media get me excited at different points in time and so i may you know be really into painting you know for a couple months or i may then be really into um you know some idea and and trying to pursue it from a research perspective and so all of these things are interesting and exciting and different media can can you know spark different possibilities that you know to go and pursue so um i've never really thought of them as being very different things i've always thought of them as coming from the same sort of under underline and i don't know if making things is the right way of describe it but it's something along those lines it's like creating something um, and so a lot of people think, well, when you, you talk about art and technology, that it somehow has to be expressing using code to make something visual or, or acoustic. Um, but I, I don't think of that at, at all as the, as the case. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of really beautiful, exciting things and how software can be designed and constructed. I mean, there's really fascinating, beautiful things happening in AI right now. Um, and so I think all of these, these, you know, these are just different mediums and, and they can all be exciting and fun to work with to create things. Um, I think in terms of the intersection of AI and art right now, that is a fascinating place. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, but, uh, I think that there's certainly going to be, uh, um, some, major changes i think in in who can get paid for work um i think a lot of i think you have a lot of probably graphic designers and stock photo libraries and all kinds of people that are going to um have an even harder time than they were already having um because of you know ai generated art and i think that's a um i mean it's it's already incredibly difficult to be an artist and there's a very, very small number of 
<coughs> people that you know um, make most of the money off of it at the top end of the art world, and then there's a lot of people that make some money off of it. And and I think that you know people that weren't buying art before um, are still not going to buy art. I think people that were people that were buying art before are going to keep buying art. And they might buy some computer-generated art as well. Um, and so I think overall, like, if you look at it from an art perspective in the art world, I don't think there's going to be, um, I think you're still going to have artists who are using AI to generate art and maybe making a lot of money off of it. Um, but I, I think that in the art world itself, fine art world, I don't think you're going to have a, a massive change in terms of, like, I don't think it's going to fundamentally change things, but I think in the more of the graphic design space, you know, stock photography, that type of space, I think there will be a lot of um, change. And I think also a lot of people will start using it as a medium. Like, what can I get this, you know, AI model to generate in terms of visuals and, and learning all the tricks to do that? I mean, I think that'll be a, a, a fascinating space. And I think people will create all these interesting images that they don't have the technical capability to sit down and create themselves to either draw or paint or, um, you know, use some digital mechanism to do, suddenly they'll be able to do that. And so I think that's going to be an interesting thing is people won't necessarily have to go and develop sort of the fundamental um, technical skills to create a lot of the imagery now that they'll be able to create um, and I'm sure that's going to be upsetting to a lot of artists who who've spent all this time and effort developing sort of those technical capabilities. And now somebody can come along with a program and and generate some really incredible looking, um, you know, imagery without the technical skills from drawing or painting or color or whatever that would have been needed before. Um, but I don't think it's going to, you know, people who are creating art, I think, are still going to be able to create art. Um I think they're still going to be able to sell it. Um, I just think that maybe a lot of the businessy uses of it or other things, maybe that type of graphic design market logo, that type of stuff, I think that will probably be hit pretty hard. I see. Yeah, you, you touched on some pretty fascinating ideas. And again, kind of that idea of a duality between the idea of having AI as a in the context of art as kind of like this toolkit. Um, versus having it kind of completely independent from a, a human artist. But I do agree that it's it's going to be really interesting to see kind of how a human in the loop with an AI working on art is going to change the uh, the industry. So just to to kind of wrap up here, are there any, I guess, I think you would agree with me that you were very fortunate to have uh, a lot of exposure and kind of nourishment around academia from a young age uh, could you speak a little bit to uh, maybe any advice that you'd have for young people that maybe don't really know what they want to do with their lives yet? They don't know uh, if they want to do grad school, they might be considering it. Are there any kind of uh, pieces of, of advice or ideas that, that you could say are uh, worthwhile? Yeah, I mean, my I guess I, in some ways I think about it, I have an eight-year-old, and so what would I tell you know, my, my son. And, and I think what I would tell him is, you know, and, and it's kind of like, uh, it's the same advice. I think you hear a lot of people, but find something, find things you really love doing um, and 
typically and and probably along along the, with that find something find things you love doing and figure out a way to do them in a you know in a way that'll support you and your family and your lifestyle or whatever it is you want um you know and and um i think academia is a great um way of doing that i mean if you're if one of the things you love is sort of intellectual freedom to be able to go and pursue ideas and explore all kinds of areas, academia is a great place to be. Um, it's also incredibly competitive to be lucky enough to get one of those jobs. And I feel really, really blessed that, um, you know, I have one of those jobs and I have the opportunity to think for a living. <laughs> it's, it's a very fun and exciting thing, but I think, I think my, my biggest advice is like, um, I think people get too wrapped up in career um, and money and thinking through those things and not enough in what do I really care and get excited about and, and don't spend enough time trying to find out what are they really passionate about. I think if you find something that you really enjoy working on on a day-to-day -day basis, then the career will take care of itself, um, probably to some degree. You'll 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 excel in whatever that thing is that you're doing, and then you know the money aspect of it is always there, obviously, and probably there'll have to be some amount of trade off between doing exactly what you want and making enough money to support what you want in terms of your lifestyle. But don't don't um, don't make the the amount of money that you're making your goal um because i think long term that's probably not going to make you the happiest but maybe maybe it is if that's your goal and that's what you enjoy doing but certainly explore um lots of of uh options that's great well dr white i really appreciate your time today it's been a pleasure hearing about a lot of unique experiences that you've had and it's always a pleasure working with you. I'm, I'm thankful to have you as a mentor. So thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Dr. Jules White. Be sure to check out the timestamps in the description if you'd like to jump around. As always, thank you for your interest and your curiosity.